Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Here in 1 Samuel 17 and also in Psalm 55, and we're going to continue in our study of Psalms 55 or uh, uh, of Psalm 55. But if you look back over the last few Psalms that we've been looking at, they're linked together. In fact, last week when we were looking at Psalm 54, I think we entitled it Betrayed and Pursued. And this morning in Psalm 55, it's Betrayed by a Friend. In fact, if you were to look at this particular subsect, each of them have a heading that refers to it with this Hebrew word, Hebrew word masculine. And it has the idea of deep instruction. It has something that is not passing, not something that you should miss something of great consequence that will be important for you and for others that will follow you to consider in their life. What I find interesting of note is it would seem Psalm 52, 53, 54, and 55 are really linked together with one overarching theme, and it's really the theme of betrayal. And Psalm 52, you remember who did the betraying? Saul. And primarily, Dog the Edomite. As they went into the village of Nob, uh, this is what, why we have to go back to 1 Samuel. There's a historical context to each one of these. Uh, in fact, the only time really Dog is really mentioned is in that passage. And Dog the Edomite kills an entire city of priests, save one whose name was Abathar. And Abathar gets out of Dodge. He survives. And he takes with him a linen ephod. He is the last of Eli's line. And he would run from thence, and, and he goes into a grand part of the wilderness, uh, perhaps even to Engedi, which is kind of an oasis off the Dead Sea. And he goes to the only person that can help him, and that's David. And he runs there for safety, and David said, hey, the guys that hate you are the same guys that hate me. Come here and I'll make sure you're safe. And such as it was. And then you come to Psalm 53. In Psalm 53, it's almost with a couple of minor exchanges. Psalm 53 is identical to Psalm 14. Now one might first look at that and say, well, see, that's how they can't be linked together because though 52, uh, 54, and 55 talk about someone's historical betrayal, aha, Psalm 53 doesn't. No, but Psalm 53 carries with it the narrative of someone that is going to be treacherous in their life. And if you would analyze Psalm 53, it, it speaks about the very fact of their working of iniquity. They have done abominable things. I think no doubt this is a description of Dog the Edomite in a real sense. And by application, as you and I study the scriptures, we full well know that there is yet another man that will come. He is referred to as the son of perdition. And he will line together subtly with cunning the greatest treachery that the world and all of its history has ever known. He will ally himself with the nation of Israel. And during a three and a half year peace pact will allow the continuation of a temple to either be built or to it, for it to be preserved. Temple sacrifice will be reinstalled. Israel in that day will feel safer than she has felt since thousands of years ago from this date forward. 
Yea, I will say that during his pact that he gives, this son of perdition, Israel will feel safer than she feels right now in her own borders. But after three and a half years, he'll break it. And he'll go in with a mighty force. Matthew chapter 24 speaks of it on this wise. Pray not that that flight be in winter. The devastation of judgment of this son of perdition that will fall on the house of Israel will be so impactful that the scripture says there'll be two in a field and one will be taken and one will be left behind. There'll be two grinding at the meal and one will be taken and one will be left behind. And they'll flee to the wilderness and yet he'll pursue. They'll flee to the mountains and yet he'll press onward still, seeking in all of his ire and indignities to destroy every Jewish individual and save the coming return of the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Zephaniah, I believe in the 14th chapter, says when he comes with his feet on the Mount of Olives, she'll cleave asunder. Except unto that end, he would have destroyed every one of the descendants of Abraham that would have existed, righteous and unrighteous. When you think about that, in that sense of this connotation, when you look at Dog, the 52nd Psalm, and his treachery, when you look at the presence of today's psalm, and even last week, the 54th psalm, you can see in full regale how they seemingly showcase a foreshadow, in a sense, of a great treachery that will occur. I skipped over the 54th psalm, but 54th psalm tells you right in the heading about when the Ziphims came and said to Saul, Doth not David hide ourselves? Abathar the priest and his linen ephod had come, and they made... Uh, adjoining, if you will, with David and came there for safety. And shortly after his arrival came messengers and told David, David, the Philistines do press upon Keilah. And Saul's not present. They're going to overrun it. And David said, all right. And so he took all of his men and they went thence, about 600 of them, I believe the scripture says, and they defeat with a mighty rout the army of the Philistines. And they go into this fortress at Keilah. And something sits not well with David's spirit, and so he prays. And in the book of Isaiah, there's maybe about all three or four of these prayers mentioned. But he prays systematically to the Lord. And there's a great lesson for you and I. I'm not against general praying. But I want to be honest with you. One thing that do your soul well is to be systematic and purposeful in your prayer. To identify things. To declare things. You say, well, the Lord knows all about that. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Most certainly does. And you can actually make the, the obvious statement that he knows more about the circumstances than your human mind could ever comprehend. But oh, how it does well when our heart specifically cries, cries unto the God of our salvation. And David says, Lord, it's all coming. Are the men of Keilah, are they going to give me up to him? Well, the Lord answers the first part of that prayer. Yes, Saul's coming. Well, Lord, I had a second part, and it's in there in the scriptures. I'm paraphrasing for time's sake. Yes, the men of Keilah seek to do wrong. So David leaves, and he goes to the wilderness of Ziph. He thinks he found safety. And sure enough, it comes thence that these men of Ziph come, and they come to Saul, and they say, Hey, we know exactly where David's hanging out. If you'll come, we'll show it to you. So he moves from one treachery, 
to another treachery. Now, there's a good bit of time that passes between the 54th Psalm and the 55th Psalm. But I think if you look at the treachery in David's heart and mind, none of it's greater than what is recorded for us in the 55th Psalm. There's a reason for that. I think there's a number of them. Number one, his family was not directly assaulted in the previous betrayals. In fact, in Psalm 52, it was Dog the Edomite. Well, David was not from Nob. And though they had helped him and aided him with food and a sword that used to belong to Goliath, they were not his blood, as it were. They were of a different tribe. He did not know all of them. Seemingly, he was only had a, a, an acquaintance really with maybe a half a dozen of them, not the whole city and village. And so this treachery, though he disdains it and hates it greatly in his soul, it hasn't struck home yet. When you come to the 54th Psalm, where's his mom and dad and household? Do you remember from last week? Well, David's already dropped them off in Moab in the king's court. They're beyond the grasp of Saul. And so you know what? They're safe. So though these Zithims, these citizens of, of the wilderness of Ziph come and say, hey, here's where he lives, it's him they're attacking. It's not his whole family. But it will be different in the 55th Psalm. I think another reason the 55th Psalm strikes so near and dear and so devastating to his heart is because of the matter of the acquaintance. In the 52nd Psalm, he knew who Doeg was. And he elicits very clear language in 1 Samuel, his disdain for this Edomite. He knew him. When he gets to Keilah and here to Ziph, perhaps he had an indication. But they again were not close to him. But it'll be different in the 55th Psalm. Notice these words here, if you will, in verse, 50, in verse 12 of Psalm 55. For it was not an enemy that reproached me. You know what David always thought Dog the Edomite would do? Kind of what he did. Did the horrendous activities surprise David of his wickedness? Yes, in some sense. Yes, it surprised him how utter diabolical he was. But after all, as a general rule, Edomites were not allies with Israelites. The 12th verse there, it's not an enemy that reproached me. Then I could have borne it, expected him to do exactly what he did. Neither was it he that hated me, that didn't magnify himself against me. <clears throat> it wasn't Dog an enemy. It wasn't the children of Ziph. I can at least say the children of Ziph, they hated me. They loved Saul. They weren't going to natively love me. So I can understand that. Had that been the case, I would have hid myself. Notice verse 13. But it was thou. A man mine, what's the scripture say? Equal. My what? What's a guide? Oh, that's a wrong question to ask at this time of year, isn't it? Some of you hunters be like, yes, the guys can show me where the big deer are. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about one that's going to give 
counsel to him. It goes on in verse 13. He said, it's my acquaintance. I know him. In fact, this man to whom it seems Scripture indicates David is referencing, their lines cross. He would be the great-grandfather of one of David's very sons. Now, this is interesting. Today we had a baby dedication in the back. We got two sets of grandparents belong to the same little grandbaby, don't we? Is that right? Now, I don't know if they're best friends. Don't answer that now. But they are very much so acquainted with each other. Why, if they were down at the Walmart, probably they'd go up and talk to each other. Probably they could shake hands. Such would be this man and David. Notice the next verse. We took sweet counsel together. You were my guide. You, you told me things, and I would tell you things. We were confident with one another. As you look in the Scripture, it would seem as, as if David in this early part is establishing this, this kingdom and trying to cobble it together in a manner of sense. Because there would be a civil war right after Saul died. It would not in direct succession go Saul and David. Now in biblical and lawful standard it would, but historical there's Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and Abner, and other men, and they would resist. And during that time, well, it was dangerous for David. There were adversaries that surrounded him, within and without. The success of the nation and the weight was greatly upon him. Any wisdom, and he would go into this man. And the scripture says of this man that his wisdom that he gave David was like an oracle from God. Think about that a moment. The guy had the Midas touch. He knew how to give wisdom whose timing was perfect, whose counsel was beyond the wisdom seemingly of men. David could tell him his heart. This man could look at him and say, I know that. I know how you feel about these things, David. And he helped him navigate so many different things. The scripture says he was as an oracle from God. Verse 14. What was David's heart? Well, he was a man after God's own heart. He worshiped the true and living God. Later in the Psalms, he says, oh, that I just a doorkeeper in the house of God. He loved to sing praises to the king of heaven. And if that was his heart, his guide and counselor and acquaintance knew it. Look what verse 14 reveals. And we walked into the house of God in company. You know what that means? They worshiped God together. We wept together. We cried together. We prayed together. We sang together. And yet this is the individual that betrayed him. Let me introduce him to you. You're in 1 Samuel. <coughs> Look at chapter 16. And what I'm going to do is read this verse. And I'm going to give you a tiny little narrative. 
because I will not have the time to go through all of this. I'd, I'd have to preach it at another time. I want to introduce this man to you. Look down at verse number 23. The last verse of the chapter, he's, he's mentioned extensively in the next chapter. And the counsel of Ahithophel, which he had counseled in those days, was as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. A time will not allow us to dig deeply. But let me take you back a little bit in 1 Samuel. After David has become king of Israel, he engages in a series of battles. Some of them were to unify the country. Some of them were to expand to the realm to which God, by the word of Moses and Joshua, had given them. Some of those were to secure their borders because there were enemies all over the place. And so in those early years as king, it seems like every other weekend as it was, David had to go to war. Let me say this. One of the big things he had to go to war with is secure the borders. Because Saul, because of pride, hatred, and bitterness, had become derelict in his duty. Saul would rather hunt a band of 600 miscreant Jews in his estimation than to face off against the hordes of the Philistines upon their coast or the Edomites to whom he had allied himself with Dog or the Moabites or the Ammonites or any of the other Canaanites that were left over in the land. Saul had set his face so against David that he had become negligent in his chief responsibility to keep the land of Israel safe and secure. In that regard, as in so many others, Saul was nothing more than an abysmal failure. Might I say this? Sometimes believers take the attitude of Saul in their life. They'll chase that which they deem ignoble, all the while ignoring their chiefest responsibilities of life. And such is the mark of Saul. He had presumed David his mortal enemy. Yet on multiple occasions when David had the opportunity to kill him, what did David do? Listen, Saul could have fallen asleep in the town square of Bethlehem and David would have stood guard around him. But he's more concerned about God's will for David than he was about his chiefest responsibility. What a sad plight that too often in the Christian life, that's exactly where we are. We're so worried about what everybody else is doing and what we think they ought to do and what they're doing wrong or how, how awful this is or how superior and really that's the essence of it. It's the root sin of pride that we ignore all the Philistines and Moabites and Ammonites. And I promise you our end will be the same. It will be a horrendous end. So David assumes the throne. He battles and engages and he has a host of men. Perhaps many of them were part of this 600 that is mentioned at 
First Samuel chapter number 16, 17 and following. There's, there's a number of them that's given there. But after a period of time, David is worn out. And so it's the time that kings should go to battle and he commits the same sin that Saul does. He doesn't go. <coughs> the scripture records he went on his rooftop and looked out from thence and there was a woman. And we're familiar, her name is. And she was the wife of one named Uriah the Hittite, a mighty man of David. He's mentioned in the end of the chapters of 2 Samuel, chapter 23. There's a number of things that come to mind. How was it that a Hittite, a soldier, not a commanding, not, he's not one of the host leaders of the host. He's never identified as that. He's not Joab. He's not Abishai. He's not Shammah. How did a Hittite wind up with a house near the king's court? Do you wonder that? It seems you go to 2 Samuel 23, and you'll find a certain man named Elam. He's introduced earlier in the chapter as the father of Bathsheba. And you want to guess who Elam's daddy is? Ahithahel. Ahithophel. You see, Ahithophel was not just a man and any man. He was David's chief counselor. And he was Bathsheba's grandfather. And do you remember Bathsheba's youngest son? And who was Solomon's daddy? David and Hithophel related through Solomon. And you think about the treachery that unfolded. I think one of the reasons this text, God gave it to us, is there's just so many similarities between Ahithophel and one that the Lord Jesus would have. His name was Judas Iscariot. Let me give you just a few of them. For instance, they were both trusted friends, or I should say they were both trusted by the friend that they betray. How trusted was Judas Iscariot to the band of disciples? He was so much so that everybody put their money with him. That, that's kind of a mark of trust, isn't it? Let me give you a second one. They both sided with an enemy to plot against their king's death. Ahithophel, Ahithophel arranged deception with Absalom. Absalom, because of bitterness and anger and some type of wild vengeance, killed his brother, his really half-brother, on a hunting trip and lied to David about it. Said, nothing's going to happen, we're over this. And then he bloodily killed him. Well, he couldn't go back home and just talk to daddy then. And so as a result, time would pass, but David's heart as a dad longed for him. And Joab warned David about it. But David did not heed. And Absalom would come and bow himself before the king, and the king would kiss him, welcome him in. And he's not home long enough to allow the incandescent light bulbs to warm up. And he goes out and puts an army together. And he begins to stand in the gates. And the king will give judgment. Uh, and let me say this. I don't think we've ever had a president. 
I don't think there's ever been a human king that can make decisions that please 100% of the people 100% of the time. You with me? We got a number of fathers, mothers. If you've got a couple of children and you've got to get involved in something and make a decision to get peace at the home, is all the children pleased with you? No. Well, David had to make some decisions. And there was always a group of people that would leave offended at the decision David made. And guess what? Just over there was the newly returned Absalom. <coughs> if I was king, I wouldn't have done it that way. If, if I was king, that wouldn't have happened. If I was king, and slowly but surely, he began to stitch himself in the hearts of the people. But he needed wisdom. He recognized there were some things he didn't know. Daddy was very long-suffering to him. So he went knocking on cabinet member Ahithophel's door. And Ahithophel said, here's what you ought to do. An old fellow followed this to a T. As a result, David has to flee Jerusalem. And at one point, there's this fellow, Shimei, pelting at them with stones, cursing him. He was a son of Benjamin. He was a relative of Saul. It comes to conclusion in the portion of, uh, in the portion of Scripture just below what we read. But Ahithophel's endgame comes to light. He said, give me 12,000 soldiers and I'll pursue David unto death. Mighty destruction. Would use an enemy, in this case Absalom, to betray his friend. I'll give you another illustration. This is very interesting. They both, Ahithophel and Judas Iscariot, had the one that they betrayed praying in the Mount of Olives. It's in Scripture. You look over in 2 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 30 and David is in the Mount Olivet praying. And really, praying for Ahithophel, praying for Absalom, praying for Jerusalem. Not unlike what you would see in a distant way of the Lord Jesus in John 17. In the fourth way, they are very much related is they both went out and hanged themselves once the betrayal was completed. But all of that devastation is not the main crux of Psalm 55. But unless you have that background, it does not bring to the same ability, the same pointedness, the essence of the Scripture. Let me give you an outline of this passage, <coughs> if I might. I'm going to divide it into three. Really, if you wanted to really dig deep and do a study, you'd divide it into seven, eight, nine, ten different sections. But for our time's sake, I'm just going to give you three. There is, if you will, the fear, first eight verses, the fury, nine through eleven, and then it concludes with his grand faith. Notice, if you will, I'm just going to point a few things. David's fear. This is King David. It's always amazing how fearful we as humans really are. I think of David, a young man who at once with his own hands killed powerfully 
ferocious animals. The David in 1 Samuel that does not just simply go out to meet Goliath in the valley, but runs at him. Do you remember? He's going to whip them all. With you or without you. I'm going to shut your mouth, Goliath. This is a little ruddy kid going to go out there, throw a stone, and he's going to whip all the Philistines. There's a mighty host around him. You'd look at that individual and say, I don't, I, how could you ever be fearful? You know, sometimes we're like that. There's a point in life where God is perhaps giving us some great victories. Some marvelous things did we see him do. <clears throat> we get the thought that me and God are a pretty good team. He's fortunate to have me on his. Things work out. I mean, it's just, and we're so bold. It doesn't take long to think that perhaps it's really our wisdom. It's really our might that delivered it. And then all of a sudden, there's a trauma that occurs. There's devastation. As of such, we're isolated. We're gassed. We seem to have no hope. We realize that now we're in a place where, well, look at what David described it as. He says in verse number 10, or verse number 2, rather, I mourn in my complaint. I make a noise. I think when you get to verse number 10, I'm hopeless. There's such a grand den of fear that is present. He's calling out to God, God, just be louder than the noise that's in my heart really is. And verse number 3 speaks about the voice of the enemy, the oppression of the wicked. He said, they cast iniquity upon me. <clears throat> the word cast is like the heaping of stones. They have an ever-present supply. And it seems in this particular circumstance that they're never going to run out of it. It's mounding upon me. The burning heat of sensation that weighs upon my soul. Note verse 4. Look at this trauma. I thought about, you could almost look at this as a traumatic stress in his life. Look at this in verse number 4. My heart is sore pained within me. My chest is about to explode. Terrors of death are falling upon me. Fearfulness, trembling are come upon me. Horror. <clears throat> I'm always amazed this time of year, the infatuation with death and horror. Horror has fallen upon me. Nobody's there to give him candy. Nobody knows what he's going through. How can he express to Joab and Abishai? How can he express to Sean? How can he express to all the others how close I am to this, this, this friend that, that injured me in such a way? And it's not just a ruination to me. It's a ruination to my entire family, to my entire realm, to my entire life work. Horror. My worst nightmare is coming to reality. 
fearfulness and tre trembling. So I think of trembling, I think of what happens in, you know, in those advanced years when the muscles don't work so well. He said, I'm shaking like a leaf. I mean, this, this makes the overwhelming of his heart. His breath is leaving him, his heart seemingly skipping beats, hearing great fearfulness brings, I think, a natural inclination to fear. If you want to call it this, it's not only a description of fear in the first part, it's a, it's a determination of fear. Notice what he says in verse 6 through 8. Oh, that I had wings like a dove. Why? I'd fly away. I'd find some little tree way out there to perch in. That's the devastation this fear brings. And by the way, I don't know if you ever even met someone named Ahithophel. But fear can bring this to reality in the life of any believer. Uncontrollable sobbing. Great fear. He said, you know what I want to do? I want to run away. In fact, in a singular regard, he tried. He left Jerusalem. He left his throne. He left his dominion. So I just fly away. One of the great dangers of fear in the life of a Christian is fear has a great opportunity in the life of a believer to bring isolation, which is the opposite of God's will for your life. I said, Preacher, you can't say that. I can. Because God said it. Remember Genesis? God saw man. Greatest man's ever been created. Adam, I'm speaking of. Perfect, most perfect specimen ever made. God looked at Adam and what did he say about him? It's good that he should not be alone. God made you to be communal in that regard. The Romans... No man liveth to himself and no man. It's God's will. That's why we have nations. That's a natural thing. That's why we have families. I think it's the 66th Psalm. The Lord said he would set the isolated in families, or the solitary rather. Those in solitary in families. That's why you have your local church. It's a family of God. Fear comes, the worst decision you can make is to fly away. Notice what he says. He's going to continue this with the second stanza of the determination of fear. Lo, then would I wander far off and remain in the wilderness. Selah. David had been accustomed to living in wilderness. Lived in the wilderness of Moan. He lived in the wilderness outside in Gedi. Lived in the wilderness of Ziph. He said, I'll go back there. The wilderness. There's no green. The critters that live there don't even want to live there. But I'll run away from this. So great is the fear in my life. Verse 8, I would hasten my escape from the windy storm and tempest. Just got to get out of the way of it. His fear. I've kind of moved a little bit to this about Ahithophel. I'll just touch on this. Notice fury in verse number 9. 
He speaks, Lord, destroy and divide. Why? Verse 10, day and night they go upon the walls. That is the walls of the city. Mischief also and sorrow in the midst of it. They're just proclaiming constantly. Lord, shut their mouths. Lord, the destruction they're doing. Wickedness is in the midst thereof. Deceit and guile depart not from her streets. Verse 15, let death seize upon them. Let them go down quickly into hell. Let God's judgment pass upon them. For wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. This is why he's fearful. And I would note there's nothing he can do about it. This moves beyond just betrayal of a friend. This moves beyond just the betrayal of a counselor and a guide. I think one of the most devastating things in a Christian's life is unconquered fear. Now, I'm not talking about fear of heights. But when you talk about fearfulness that prevents you from being the Christian you ought to be, you've got a significant problem. I'd be remiss if I didn't say I've seen that, heard that, I felt that often. I remember as a young man, God calling me into the ministry and the fear that gripped my soul. It's always jealous of the guy that was super excited about serving God. You say, you weren't? Not at the onset. Fear. You know why? Because you just can't control things. There's doors you can't make open. And then there's doors that are open for you and you look on the other side and you perceive that that might not be where you can thrive. That might not be where God can bless. I would note the book of Judges. Joshua was gripped by the same thing. You remember? He's got to lead a whole host of people into a land that God has promised that he's only seen one time and nobody agreed except for Caleb on what he saw. And he had been with the parents of these people for 40 years and all they complained about it. And he watched, the scripture says, the meekest man on the face of the earth go back crazy at the rock of of Horeb. The meekest man in all the world, the scripture says it, lost his religion over these people. Joshua looked at this. Do you think he ran out there thinking, I got this? No. Multiple times in the opening verses you hear this. Be strong. I will be with thee. Turn not to the right hand nor to the left. Be strong. Be very courageous. It is oft times that God allows grand circumstances in the life of His children for their betterment and for their strength and for His glory and testimony. You can look at that and say, Oh, that I had uh, wings like a dove that I could fly away. Oh, that I could wander into the wilderness. Oh, that I could hasten my escape. My friend, can I note the obvious here? If David had been allowed to do these, 
You think of the utter harm that would have been caused. The utter loss that would have been missed. The victories that were never gained. Absalom does not become king. But if David runs away, guess what happens to Absalom? He becomes king. No, it would be the tenth son of David. The youngest son of Bathsheba and David become king. And within a few years' time, something very interesting was said about this. Said silver was his stones in Jerusalem. If David would have run away, the temple of God would have never been built. The worship would have never had. The Psalms would have never been penned. The blessings to Jerusalem for dozens of years, dozens of years following him would have never been had. I'm not talking about facing your fear. I'm talking about following God though you have fear. And that's the last part of this passage. Notice, if you will, his faith. In this last section, verse 16 to 23, he makes three personal statements. When I read through the Psalms or the New Testament portion of the Bible and you find that singular personal pronoun, I, that is the preserved in the Scriptures reference of what the individual that God used to write it said. So in Romans chapter 1, 13 times Paul says, I. He's not talking about Silas. He's not talking about Matthew. He's not talking about Peter. He's talking about Paul. David three times is going to say, I. Notice what he does here, if you will. Notice verse 16. As for me, what am I going to do? <laughs> Praise the Lord, there's not. Verse 15b. I fled into the mountains. Now I'm going to call upon God. The Lord shall save me. <clears throat> Praise the Lord, that's what his name means. The name Jesus, Deliverer. Notice verse number 17, evening, morning, at noon. A perpetual cry, will I pray and cry aloud? He shall hear my voice. I wonder why he's praying at evening, at morning, at noon. I think because at evening, morning, and noon, this fear is upon him. And the fear is upon me. I'm going to ally myself with the God of my salvation. I'm going to trust Him and I'm going to cry aloud to Him. I'm going to cast all my cares upon Him. He is going to be my hope and my sustainer and my shield and my buckler. Can I note what is obviously missing in verse number 17? He did not say, I'm going to cry and I'm going to pray aloud to a lot of other people. And being the king of Israel, he really couldn't. This is a treacherous time. He can't pick up the phone and dial collect and talk to Absalom and say, let's make a deal, Monty. He can't go to his former counselor, Hithophel. Who's he going to go to? There's nobody else. Half his sons are dead at this point in time. Should he get audience with Shema uh, 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 and say, hey, I, I know that you hate me and dislike me. Can we, get together? Can we have a talk? Who is he going to talk to? 
And no doubt there'd be some guy that says, well, really, part of this is your problem. <clears throat> There's a theological word for that. Ready? Duh. Yes, part of it was my fault. Why? Because I was tired and fearful and I didn't do what I was supposed to do in the first place. There's an awful high probability that if David and Bathsheba, David and Bathsheba, <laughs> Bathsheba and David, if they had never gotten together, if that issue had been left, if they'd have resisted the temptation... Ahithophel would still be his friend. And things would have been mighty different. In fact, the scripture even says that part of God's judgment for that initial sin was there'd be trouble in his house. This is a direct result of trouble in his house. It said sometimes we make decisions and we think it's just a little thing. But it begats children upon children of little issues and surmounts to big giants that will put us in these circumstances. Yes, sometimes the greatest enemy that will ultimately because of their failures produce the greatest problems that will bring the greatest fear is the person that we supposedly love the most, ourselves. He'd have been better off to be obedient in the first place. There's a lesson to remember in that. You couldn't just cry to anybody. Somebody else say, hey, let, let me tell you what happened. <coughs> I know that. But I can't get back in the time machine and undo it all. What do I do now? I go forward right for God where I am right now. Notice, if you will, I'm going to show you this third one. It's all the way back in verse 23. That, really, that last phrase, I will trust in thee. This is directly related to what I've done. I'm going to pray. I'm going to consistently pour all my grief out to God. Listen. He could have committed additional sins. He's the king. He's the judge. And he's the legislative branch. <laughs> Any other king wouldn't have left. You know what they'd have done? They'd have cleaned house. Oh, and I left something out on this when I was giving my introduction. It just occurred to me. Abathar's involved with this a little bit too, later down the road. It's a mess. And he could have looked at his loyal hitmen like Joab and said, Hey, you go get some of those Green Beret guys we got and kill them all. Innocent, complicit, or guilty. It's not his attitude. In fact, in fact, at this particular time, there's not a whole lot of decisions recorded in scriptures that David makes. It's all a response of what he does. He's going to wait on God. He's going to pray to God. He's going to persistently cry his complaints out to God. Had David chose a trusted act, I mean, Joab was already tired of some of this mess to begin with. Joab, in the first place, didn't want him to at all meet with Absalom. In fact, Absalom, when he wants to reconnect with Daddy, couldn't go to Daddy. So he goes to Absalom, and he had rejected him and rejected him and rejected him and rejected him. So Absalom burned his fields so that he could get an audience with Joab. 
couple of chapters later, it likely is Absalom that ends, jo uh, uh, it is likely Job that ends Absalom's life. It's a mess. Three personal actions. Let me show you some personal realizations. I'll just point them out. <coughs> Verse number 17, he says, He will hear my voice. You're going through a time of great storm, as the scripture says there, windy storm and tempest. The Lord shall hear your voice. He doesn't hear every prayer that's prayed to him. There's a lot of prayers that are prayed to the unknown God. There's a lot of unbelievers that talk about casting their prayers up to God. But listen, when the child of God that is redeemed by his glorious name and his precious blood in faith prays, God hears them. Romans chapter 1, they have access by faith. They are to come boldly into the throne of grace to seek for help in a time of need. He shall hear thee. It's an interesting thing. Trouble grip your soul. Where do you turn? This time of year, it, it, it just flusters my mind. Now, Christians talk about the fear that they see without and all the devastation. And they'll go to rallies and they'll go to conventions, yet at the prayer house where they meet with the Almighty God, they're not present. The only one that can help them. The only one that can deliver. The only God that can sustain them. And there's a reason fear continues. Because his presence has not been pursued. David's realization, he's going to hear me. Notice, if you will, in verse number 17, he'll hear my voice. Verse number 18, he hath delivered my soul in, what's the word? Isn't it quite interesting? Peace despite all of the advents and circumstances that would bring about, uh, that are brought about by fear, I'm going to have peace. I'm going to ask you a question. What happened between verse 17 and 18? Did the circumstances change right there? Are we mincing an ancient text that delivers the, the codex for right here? No. Circumstances didn't change at all. But his heart and mind had peace. If you're in the presence of God, friend, I do not care how strong the storm is. You can have the peace of God. I'm not promising you that. I'll fail you. You having a great storm in your life, maybe caused because of decisions you made, maybe not. Maybe you were betrayed. I don't know the circumstances, the fear is present. You call the preacher, he, he'll fail you from time to time. It's not his attempt, just that's his ability. But the presence here, he's going to deliver my soul. And I know we're not in English class, but look at the second word there in verse 18. What is it? It's past tense. He hath. God already had a path to safety. 
What about David having to find it? It's about God having to reveal it. There was a way, even in this dire circumstances, for the glory of God to be manifested and for God to be placed. There's a right way at all times. It's a realization. There's three of them so far. The Lord will save me, verse 16. Verse 17, he'll show him my voice. Verse 18, he's delivered my soul in peace. Verse number 19, God will hear and afflict them. Just if you're taking notes, God's going to make sure justice occurs. I think that's oftentimes what, if we're wronged, this is the context of Psalm 55, how are you going to make this right? You don't need to worry about that. God's going to take care of it. Why? Because that's his name. That's his character. You don't need to worry about it. You, you, you can let that pass. I think that's a lot of reasons why people don't have peace in their life. They're so bothered over something that occurred that that just stirs up and churns constantly and they can never have peace. I like his phrase here in verse number 19, even he that abideth abode. You want to know how God can make good of his promises? Just go look how he's behaved himself since the first day, even until now. Where's he failed? I promise you, it's not God failing his children. It's his children. It's me and you failing him. He goes on, verse number, I lost my place here, maybe verse 22. He shall sustain thee. He shall sustain thee. Never suffer the righteous to be moved. And finally, in verse number 23, going back to his justice, he will sentence them. God will make good. Now, I realize if we've never been betrayed by a close friend, maybe some of this is not applicable to all of those instances. But in the grand regard of the human experiences a child of God will have in their life, there's a number of noteworthy applications that can be arrived at. There's never going to be a time in our life where we can't fail be, to be obedient to God. Just like David of old. That our sin always has a consequence, even if it takes many, many years to see it come before us. I think about the fact that though these consequences come upon us, God still has a path in them for you and I to bring glory to his name. I'm so thankful for that. I think another thought that comes to mind, as I've said already, God's ever ready to hear from His children. That's a glorious thing to consider. And too often, in the midst of this, plowing ahead, fearful of everything, we're going to be a simpleton. We're going to grit our teeth pull up the bootstraps of our boots and we're going to handle it. But I don't think we have to really say what's going to happen to that path. But that isn't what God wants us to do. He wants us to lean upon Him. All the overtures of Proverbs chapter 3. Trust the Lord with all thine heart and what? In all thy ways acknowledge him and he will.
Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.